I V M. In the secret cabinet of a museum in Naples, Italy, is an ivory statuette of a stunningly beautiful woman. Her legs are intertwined, her arms raised languorously. Her hair falls like a waterfall down her back, braided with jewels and flowers. Elaborate ornaments and garlands rest on her ample curves. Folds of translucent cloth drape her body, covering precisely nothing, and she smiles enigmatically, alluringly, as if she knows exactly what any viewer would think. of her beauty and her sexuality The statuette was probably owned by some wealthy family in the Roman city of Pompeii Was she considered a work of art Did they unveil her beauty at their dinner parties to be gasped at by gaggles of wealthy sophisticated guests Did her proud arched eyes ensnare the hearts of some lonely aged senators Was she admired for hours in silence by love-struck young men who saw in her their own beloveds so close and yet so far and when in 79 CE the volcano Vesuvius erupted like the forge of the angry god Vulcan suffocating the people of Pompeii with its furious fumes smothering the once busy city with the black ash that had festered in its heart for centuries Did she welcome the darkness and the sleep in her dreams until she was dug up 1900 years later did she see the land where she was born did she see india i am anirudh kanesetti and welcome to echoes of india When you and I study history, it's hard to constantly remember that all of human history happened simultaneously. Every single human on earth today is a resultant of the actions and inactions of all of our common ancestors who spread out all across the world with their own romances and glories and despairs. Every arbitrary unit of time, every century, every hour, every minute was filled with sex and violence and money and music and the thrill of the senses of being alive and looking out into the endless cosmos in silent wonder as real to them then as it is to us now Julius Caesar was conquering Gaul while Aziz the Shaka king of kings battled the Indo-Greeks Qin Shi Huangdi unified China under his bloody sword while Ashoka Maurya was brutally conquering Kalinga and how many other peaceful lives who changed the world in equally important ways have we forgotten how many brave people traveled across the world experiencing the wonders of the silk roads those great economic webs that spread from china through southeast asia and india through africa and persia into europe what languages did they speak and what did they dream of at night Though I've mentioned in earlier episodes how important merchants and trade were to the Indian subcontinent, we'll delve into that a little bit in this episode. That beautiful ivory statuette which I described in the beginning of the episode, whom we'll call the Yakshi, 
or the Indian fertility deity of Pompeii is the perfect opportunity to discuss something that we think is very much a feature of the modern world, an early form of global trade. The thing is, as a species, we have a tendency to believe that we are unique and there's never really been anyone like us. So globalization, multiculturalism, cosmopolitanism, tolerance, human rights and all the other things that we take for granted now must be new and the result of things like the European Enlightenment and neoliberal capitalism, blah 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 blah. That's sort of true. But as we know, at least in the case of ancient India, multiculturalism, pluralism and tolerance weren't really that alien. Nor was it very strange for an ancient Indian, especially living in say Gandhara where the Indo-Greeks rule, to live in a cosmopolitan city where many languages were spoken and residents came from many ethnic backgrounds. So why do these supposedly modern or 21st century traits seem to show up so early in ancient India? Here's one possible explanation. The neurological foundations of human behavior haven't changed. Given the profit motive and the particular geographical and social environment of the Indian subcontinent, these ideas evolved because they suited our ancestors. Similar forces also drive modern globalization. Human behavior, the profit motive, and particular geographical, technological, and political configurations, allowing its ideas and institutions to evolve and thrive. So it shouldn't really be that surprising that ancient societies, though they didn't have gigantic freighter ships, internet connections, and passports, also had some form of globalization, rudimentary and different from ours though it was. India was especially well positioned for that sort of thing compared to many ancient societies. It was bang in the middle of the Indian Ocean, about midway between the massive markets of the Mediterranean and China. So let's come back to our ivory carving. How did this beautiful Indian lady come to ancient Rome? The answer, like much in history, is we don't know for sure, not a hundred percent. We know that at least since the times of Cyrus of Persia in the 7th century BCE, there was already some contact between West Asia and India. And then, after the disruptive campaigns of Alexander the Great in the 4th century BCE, which we started this season with, the Greco-Roman world began to rapidly emerge as a new power centre. These new elites in this new power centre now knew about India, and as we saw in episode 1 of this podcast, they were connected to India through political links. And so, trade began to bloom, flowing from India through Persia into the Mediterranean. But then the Central Asian and Parthian tribes came in, as we saw in episode 2, bringing with them turmoil and warfare and creating new trade networks in India's northwest. Trade from Gandhara was temporarily less viable for the Mediterranean, but that was for the best it turned out, because now Central and West India, along the Deccan coast, also entered the trade game. The Romans were busy brutally conquering most of the Mediterranean world and extracting wealth, which ended up in the hands of new elites in new urban centers, connected through the turbulent maritime highway of the Mediterranean Sea. And in India, we saw in episode 3 that state formation was also well underway. Don't worry, I'll put links to all these episodes in the description. In India, as in ancient Rome, there was increased social stratification, urbanization, 
and economic specialization, allowing for the exchange and development of goods and ideas. Much of the maritime trade from the Mediterranean to India was controlled by a kingdom founded by one of the successors of Alexander, a man called Ptolemy. This kingdom was Egypt, and Ashoka Maurya actually sent diplomats to interact with a descendant of Ptolemy, calling him Tulumaya in his inscriptions. The Ptolemies, like the Indo-Greeks or really the Indo-everythings, settled down into Egypt, blending with their culture. But since they were much closer to the Greek world, they retained much Greek influence, whereas the Indo-Scythians, or the Indo-Greeks, weren't really close to their homelands and so became much more Indianized. This Greek kingdom in Egypt had two shores. One was on the Mediterranean Sea, opening onto the Greco-Roman world. The other was on the Red Sea, pouring into the Arabian Sea and connected from there to India. Explorers discovered the monsoon winds that blew ships to India roughly in the 1st century BCE. They would have come to Gujarat, to Maharashtra, all along the western coast of the great peninsula of South India. Soon they came to the east coast as well, which we'll discuss in a later episode. But on the western coast of India, they would have met newly emerging states with their own artistic traditions, such as the Satavahanas and the Shakas. Greco-Egyptian buyers would have picked up stuff that they thought was appealing and sold to Indians the stuff that Indians found appealing. There would have been an exchange of ideas and of artistic traditions. Indian artisans, who were always an inventive sort of bunch, experimented with styles that their new patrons would have liked. Indian elites would have wanted the exotic styles of the West, and the West, even in this early period, wanted the exotic magical goods of India. We'll talk more about how Roman art influenced Indian masters in the next episode of the podcast, but it's a remarkable parallel to how Indian elites today continue to consume and adapt Western styles and produce. One would have thought, really, that having these close trading ties would have helped ancient Indians and Romans realize that they weren't so different after all. But strangely enough, ideas are heavier than luxury items. Romans received goods that Indians would have found completely normal, such as spices. But since these goods were rare and came from far away, the Romans didn't know their original mundane purpose. Writing from the time shows that stuff like spices, perfumes and Indian art were actually believed to be magical objects. And what's really interesting is that there's a similar pattern in how the West sees India today. We are still exotic, still alien, still somehow different. Have you ever met an Indian hippie wandering around the beaches of Marseille, France, searching for spiritual enlightenment in the works of Plato, or for that matter, the doctrines of the medieval Catholic Church? On the other hand, the beaches of Pondicherry are thickly covered with Western tourists on a mission to discover themselves by studying medieval or even early modern Indian philosophy that most Indians would never even have heard about. I'm always tempted to tell them, look, you can come to Pondicherry for the pretty beaches in the colonial history, but your whole millennial discovering yourself by backpacking through India is just some orientalist hokum that has been nicely marketed to you, and the only enlightenment you're going to find is going to be a very, very expensive placebo effect. The strange thing is that even Indians have internalized this Western view of Indian culture, 
seeing it as some sort of source of perfect wisdom and magical spirituality. And I get that. It's hard to admit that our ancestors, brilliant as they were, were just as flawed and brilliant as any other ancient humans. It's hard to say, hey, you know what, we were special, but only as special as every other human civilization. And it's even harder to say that because it means that we can't easily say that our ancestors weren't any more special or advanced than the Western colonizers who made us ashamed of our culture for so long. But that's a debate for another day and another place. So let's come back to the 2nd century BCE and continue with the tale of early globalization. The exchange of artistic traditions, driven by the need to appeal to new, sort of proto-globalized cosmopolitan elites, explains a great deal about the mysterious ivory lady of Pompeii. Any modern Indian would take a look at her and say, bro, that's one of us. I'll put a bunch of pictures of her in the description and you can tweet me if you agree. But the Yakshi is also different. There are echoes of Indian art in her, but there's clearly some influence from Greco-Roman ideas of art as well. If you've been to the Sanchi Stupa in central India, you can also see some similarities in the way she's carved. Now the thing is, like most Indian sacred sites, Sanchi was worshipped at for centuries and was constantly updated with donations from patrons using the latest artistic styles. Bands of master artisans would have travelled from one part of the subcontinent to another, wherever there was a demand for their work, and spread styles across regions across centuries. So maybe some of them were involved in making her. I know I haven't really answered the question about where the Yakshi has come from, but there's one final clue which I haven't mentioned yet. On the bottom of the statue is a single letter in Karoshti script. In episode 2 of the podcast, I mentioned that Kharoshti was the script used in the northwestern part of the Indian subcontinent, in Gandhara, but our lady doesn't look that Gandharan. It's still enough of a clue to reconstruct her story though, and it's even more complex than you may have thought. The Yakshi of Pompeii was probably made in central India for a Gandharan market during the early period of urbanization when the Satavahanas were rising to power. Maybe an artisan whose father worked at Sanji taught him how to carve and they were making stuff adapted to the artistic tastes of some wealthy Gandharans. This is why art history can be so fascinating. It shows us the imprints, the traces that our ancestors left on the turbulent, never-ending river of time. Now somehow, despite the turmoil of the times with Central Asian tribes flowing into the Northwest, the carving found her way through trade to Gandhara. There, perhaps, she caught the eye of a Greek merchant who was visiting these once Indo-Greek cities and he shipped her south along the Indus and across the Arabian Sea. Did she see the lands of Ethiopia where the monsoons are born? How did she feel when she stood in the bustling markets of Alexandria and Egypt where the mad conqueror Alexander who once tried to conquer India, was buried. Did she see the pyramids and bask in the light of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the great lighthouse of the pharaohs, which speared the clear blue skies of the Mediterranean like a marble arm, casting its light for miles? Did she enjoy the attention of art collectors who convinced some wealthy Roman to pay through the nose for her 
this magical exotic beauty from the distant lands of India and laughs silently at the idea that anyone could believe that an ordinary ivory statuette could be magical just because it came from a strange land. Maybe she felt a spark of wonder and pity for these teeming, curious, countless masses of humanity spread across the earth. And maybe, standing lonely in the Museum of Naples with only her two attendants to give her company, she misses the time and place from which she came and wishes silently to go back one day. If you liked Echoes of India, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM podcast app or ivmpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not follow us on Twitter and Instagram at IVM Podcasts. And if you have questions or comments on Echoes, I'm at A. Kanisetti on Twitter and at Aniruddha Devaraya on Instagram.